1 Corinthians chapters 5 and 6. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. That a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For indeed, for I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan, for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. And you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, 
But all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach, and the stomach for foods. But God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord, and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the church is one spirit with him. Sorry, he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You may be seated. First Corinthians 1 and 2, we dealt with the idea of the report of division, and then we dealt with the idea of epistemology and how we get knowledge from divine revelation, and it's not inventions out of the hearts of men by a pure rationalism, and it's not by the eye or the ear, it is not by empiricism, but that it is divine propositional revelation by which we obtain knowledge, by which we obtain wisdom. When we get into chapter 3 and chapter 4, we began to deal with some of the realities about sectarianism or schism, division, and the carnality of the flesh desiring to sort of have a king, to have a human being other than Christ as the rallying point. And there is this idea that the temple of God is to be unified together as one body. And there's a spirit that dwells within us, and our king is Jesus. So the unity that we have comes from the revealed word, our unified king, and the fact that the Holy Spirit will guide us into truth. And so we are told to be aware of the doctrines of men and of the philosophies of this age, and we're reminded of the need not to boast in men, but to glory in the knowledge of God. And back in chapter 2 is that reference to Jeremiah 9. And chapter 4, there's this idea that even church officers are servants of Christ and stewards of mysteries, not inventors of doctrines, not magisterial authority, as though they have a teaching power to invent doctrine, but a ministerial authority, a stewardship authority. They are servants and not masters. And so as servants of Christ, 
there is a duty to administer the doctrine, worship, and government that has been appointed by Christ, to have no inventions in any of them. Now, Paul asserted that they were not served well by having their many teachers, and that's what we're reminded of the warning in James, now I have many teachers, that there's a need to carefully choose officers. And we move into chapter 5, and what we have is moving past division, there's not only a division in doctrine because of the belief in doctrines of men, and not only are there issues with the worship, but there's also this problem of the failure of discipline. So the church is becoming more and more corrupt. There's a failure to deal with discipline and order. And so Paul is dealing with it in lots of ways. He's, he's rebuking the doctrinal issues. He's rebuking the worship issues. He's rebuking the, the, the failure to deal with order and to deal with discipline. And so let's get to verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. Now, the word that's used that's translated here, sexual immorality, is uh, the same root for uh, the word pornography. It's pornea. And what we have is this category of sexual sin. And this is an important idea, uh, this idea of pornea. Uh, We're told that uh, pornea is an example of something that is divorceable. We are told also in Acts 15 that pornea is one of the categories of ceremonial law that is retained over. And so we go, it's interesting how is this related to, it's obviously a moral law, the seventh commandment. There's also the issue of the, uh, the ceremonial law having certain sexual laws associated with it. And so we have to deal with that. And so we, we deal with this idea of pornea, and we'll look at some of those texts in a minute. But let's look at the kind of sexual immorality that's being talked about. It's a type that's not even named among the Gentiles. In other words, even the Gentiles find this to be abhorrent. That a man has his father's wife. That language, his father's wife, is distinct from saying your mother. The idea here is not his mother. The idea here is it's his father's wife, who is a stepmother, and the presumption here would be that the father is dead. Okay, so let's deal with this. Let's jump back. Go with me to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, verse 29, is the part of the decree of the council uh, that gives us sense of the judgment of the council of Jerusalem. So Acts 15 as a whole is dealing with the issue of ceremonial law. It's talking about circumcision and the law of Moses. And what they list out is they list out four ceremonial laws that are still binding and everything else the Gentiles are free of. And so here are the ones they list. Verse 29 is the end of a letter. These are first proposed by forgive me. These are first proposed by James. Um and so then the, the assembly organizes it into the letter. They, they, they vote to accept this. And verse 29 says that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from pornea, from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Okay, so 
Um, you see the judgment at the end. It has those categories. I want to read to you the letter now in full. Jump back to verse 23. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit. Notice this is a commandment of God. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit. And to us, to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Necessary things. These are necessary. They are obligatory. That you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Now, these things are found in Leviticus. These things are found in Leviticus chapters 17 through 20, mostly concentrated in 17 and 18 in particular. And the initial order of them is different when James presents them. He presents them as things polluted by idols, sexual immorality, things strangled, and from blood. And then the letter reorders them. James is operating from memory, and the council decides to reorder them. Why do they reorder them? They reorder them to match the order that they appear in Leviticus. So the decree of the council puts these things in the order that they are listed in Leviticus. Now when you go to Leviticus, go now to Leviticus 17. Leviticus 17 starts with the idea of blood. Now, that's right, it starts with it starts with the idea of the proper worship that occurs. There's a reference to the worship in the tabernacle and proper offerings. Then it goes to blood. And what we see in verse 8 is whatever man of the house of Israel or the strangers who dwell among you who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the door of the tabernacle of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from among his people. So we see after idolatry, so forgive me, idolatry is the first one. After idolatry, there's a reference to this idea of the stranger. This law does not just apply to the Jew. It applies to the stranger. This is not a law that separates Jew from Gentile. That's one of the principles for which ceremonial laws are retained. 
These are ceremonial laws that apply not only to the Jew, but to the Gentile. All of the markers that separate Jew from Gentile are ended. But these are established in the ceremonial law. Then, it goes to the blood. Verse 10, And whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who eats any blood, okay, and then it goes on and talks about the rest of it. Notice it applies to Israel and to the strangers. Not a separator between Jew and Gentile. Verse 13. Whatever man of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you who hunts and catches any animal or bird that may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with dust. Okay, so here's the animal with the blood in it. Okay, so the idea of the strangled animal, you kill it in such a way as to keep the blood in it. Okay, that is forbidden not only to Israel, but also to the Gentile. Where does the blood command come from? Genesis 9, when Noah was told that he was authorized to eat animals. He was told to not eat the blood in it. That was always given to the whole world. So that was given with the authorization to eat animals, and it's repeated here, and it's repeated in Acts 15. It applies to us. It applied to the church of old. It applied before Israel was separated from the nations. And then we get to this list in chapter 18 of all of these sexual laws. Look at verse 6. None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord. And then it lists a bunch of people. And notice the first two it lists. Verse 7, the nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother, you shall not uncover. That's established in the formation of marriage. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Right? The leaving of father and mother requires that you not marry them. So this is the only law prohibiting marriage in the original formation of marriage. It was prohibited to marry a parent. That was inherent in the creation ordinance. All of the rest of these laws are established here in Leviticus 18. Which is why you see, you know, how do you solve the problem? Where did Adam and Eve's children get wives or husbands? Well, they married their siblings. He was not forbidden yet. How do you deal with Abraham marrying a half-sister? It wasn't forbidden. The incest laws are established here. And so what you have is, in verse 8, the nakedness of your father's wife you shall not uncover. It is your father's nakedness. That's the first law of affinity. The laws of consanguinity are the laws saying how close of a relative in love, or sorry, how close of a relative by blood can you marry? The laws of affinity are how close of a relative by marriage can you marry? This is the first law of affinity. is to not marry your father's wife. So this is a stepmom. That is the example, providentially, that comes up in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. If you will not admit that these sections of Leviticus continue, the only law of affinity that you have in the New Testament is this one. 
Also, you don't have a restatement of the laws of consanguinity. So that means if we have the New Testament and not the Old Testament to provide these things, you can marry anybody except for your mother, your father, and your stepmother. If you don't take these chapters from Leviticus as defining this for us, then that's the result, which is absurd. And so what we need to deal with is the fact that we don't just have 25% of the Bible. We have 100% of the Bible. And the ceremonial laws that distinguish Jew from Gentile, those are ended. These did not distinguish Jew from Gentile. If you look at the text in Leviticus, it tells us in verse 24, do not defile yourself with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled. Okay, so the nations are being held accountable for it, not just the Jews. Verse 26, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or any stranger who dwells with you. See the same principle? These are the four categories of ceremonial law that Jews and Gentiles had to keep. And these are the four categories that Acts 15, in the council, they list out. And when they write it as a decree, they put it in the same order that Leviticus has it. So back to 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Right? The, this sin is plainly sin, and it's taught in the Old Testament. Guess what they didn't have yet? They didn't have 1 Corinthians before this. Paul is saying they should have known this before they had 1 Corinthians. Why should they have known it? They should have known that even in the New Covenant era, these still applied because they applied to Jew and Gentile alike. And they should have known because of the Acts 15 council. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. They're saying, he's saying there should have been a mourning, there should have been a disciplinary act, there should have been a removing from the midst because of unrepentant public sin. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged. Now you remember earlier on, he talked about how we're not judged by men, it's a small thing to be judged by men. Why should we care about Paul judging? Because Paul's judging in accordance with Christ's command. And so it is, this judgment is the judgment of Christ. For indeed, as absent in body, but present in spirit, I have already judged, as though I were present with him who has done this deed. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, what does that mean? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a throwaway phrase. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is not something you just make it feel more emotional. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ has doctrinal content. When we say, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're saying, we're doing this thing as though Christ himself were doing it. So if we pray in the name of Jesus, we're praying as though Jesus himself were praying it. If we say this is a judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're saying this is a judgment that's like the Lord Jesus Christ were making it. Matthew 18 says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, that I'm with them. And he says there, the idea is, that when two or three brothers are gathered together, that's sufficient to form a church. 
And when they exercise discipline against an errant member, it's as though, as long as it's right, it's as though it were the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, we have just dealt with a matter of rebellion. We are taught that rebellion is also a similar and serious sin. Public rebellion has to be dealt with in that way as well. When we have public sins, when we have things that are not repented of, when you have a grievous act of sin or crime, there are obligations to deal with those things swiftly and clearly. We're still following process. Six, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Everybody thinks they're so strong they don't need to separate themselves from corrupting influences. And we all think, it's okay, I can do this thing. I can be around this thing. I can be around this influence. I'll be fine. This is fine. That's for weak people. I'm fine. Have you ever thought that maybe the fact that you don't think you're weak is a weakness that the Lord might be allowing you to fall into so that you can be disciplined to remove that weakness? Have you ever thought that it might be a weakness that the enemy might want to attack if you think, I'm strong and not weak? Your glorying is not good. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? A little bit of corruption spreads to the whole. This is true covenantally, if it's not dealt with. And it's true in influence, if it's not dealt with. Therefore, purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. Right? If this is a true church, it will discipline sin. It will discipline unrepentant sin. It will discipline crimes. It will discipline things that come to the public eye that need to be dealt with. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. One of the marks of the church is discipline. One of the marks of the church government. If the government doesn't discipline to maintain the moral order, to maintain right worship, right doctrine, those things will not last for long. One of the reasons is because true believers will start to jump ship because they will see that mark going away. And what you will have is a cancerous hulk full of leaven. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. Bill, would you mind setting that for 30 minutes for me? I'm starting it. Thank you. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So the idea of leaven here goes back to with the Passover feast, the Jews were called to search out in their homes for any leaven and to remove it. And the removal of leaven, that was a symbol for the removal of something. And we're going to have that symbol explained for us. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. 
The idea that because we have Christ who was sacrificed for us is the reality of the Passover, therefore we can rely upon the power of the Spirit and the effectual work of the Word to be able to remove sin, to remove leaven. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We're not supposed to keep the Passover feast anymore. One of the ceremonial laws has been removed. The Lord Jesus Christ replaced the Passover with the Lord's Supper. Very plainly did so. He has the Passover, and he gives the sign of the New Covenant. In giving the sign of the New Covenant, what he does is he gives to us a thing that includes all the meaning of Passover, as well as all of the other sacrificial sacraments. So all that meaning is contained there. And so we're to keep this feast, and we're to keep this feast without the old leaven. The old leaven is that leaven that needs to be cut out. The leaven that was already there. The leaven of malice. The leaven of wickedness. Think about this. The leaven of wickedness is pretty plain. Ongoing sin that's not repented of, that needs to be removed. That malice needs to be removed. It shouldn't be at the feast. We are to carefully search out the house of the Lord and to find any leaven and to remove it. Also, malice, where you come to the Lord's table hypocritically and you're holding something against someone. If there's an offense and it hasn't been dealt with and you come to the table, you come with the leaven of malice. And so we're not to have the old leaven of malice and wickedness, but we're supposed to have the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Sincerity and truth. The idea of coming with integrity, not not hypocritically taking the Lord's Supper, and coming professing the true doctrine. And so we have integrity and we have truth. As opposed to malice and wickedness. That malice is opposed to the sincerity of coming and being able to unhypocritically recovenant. And the wickedness is a lie that's applied. Verse 9. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet, I certainly did not mean with sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. We don't have to separate from people in the world who are sinners in the same way that we have to separate from unrepentant, sinning people who call themselves brothers. You engage with them. You can eat with them because you're trying to evangelize. Now, there's a difference between eating with people who are unbelieving and in horrible sin for the sake of eating with them because they're fun company versus going to them in order to offend them with the gospel in the hopes that they will repent. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't go to the parties with the harlots and tax collectors in order to enjoy their company. He went there in order to offend them, and he was very good at it. He could find opportunities swiftly. Well, interesting you brought that up. I wanted to tell you about the gospel. Right? The way he talks to them, he just finds anything and connects it and uses parables to make a bridge. He quickly moves into the gospel. And the result is repentance. On the other hand, somebody who's a brother who is in public unrepentant sin, you don't keep company with them. 
Verse 11, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Not even to eat with such a person. Not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Outside of what? Outside of the church. Do you not judge those who are inside? Inside of what? Inside the church. But those who are outside, outside of what? Outside of the church. But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Churches, the courts of churches, have authority to judge those who are within the church. They do not have the authority to judge those who are outside of the church. And guess what that means? You necessarily have to have church membership. How else can you distinguish who is inside and outside unless there is a role If there is no list, there is no way to know. So local, particular assemblies, regional assemblies, broader assemblies, they all need lists to identify the member bodies. Church membership is necessary to church government. It is popular in our time to not have church membership. People try to argue that there's not a basis for it. Yes, there is. You are not a church if you do not have discipline. And the church has no authority to exercise discipline over anybody except for the members of that church. A church that does not have membership is not a church. A church that does not have membership is not a church. It is lacking the mark of government. Verse 13, But those who are outside God judges... When we cast somebody out of the church, we're handing them over to be judged by God. And God uses His servant, the demons, to chasten their bodies. Chapter 6, verse 1. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? So look at this. The end of chapter 5 says the church only has authority over the saints. And, ch- and, and, and chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it begins with, and the church has a first and exclusive authority over the saints. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? This question is a rhetorical question. Do you dare do this? Are you going to say, no, rather than coming before the court of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm going to go to Caesar? Who's Lord? Which one's Lord? If we go, when there's a brother in good standing, and we don't go to our shared court first, and we instead go, having a shared court, to the civil court, We are throwing off the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an affront and challenge to the king. 
Verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? This is, this is not a necessary argument in this sense. Right? This isn't saying, because you're fit to judge the world, therefore you should, you're fit to judge the smallest matters. What it's saying is, someday you will judge the world. Are you confessing right now that you're so incompetent right now that you're not even fit to judge these small matters? In the context of them glorying and being puffed up with pride, see how that's an effective rhetorical move? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you now, at this time, unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? No, we're going to judge the world. We're going to judge angels. How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? So, so you guys think you're wise? You think you think you, you glory in having knowledge? Okay, the elders that you chose, are they the least wise of you or the, the most wise? Which which ones did you pick if you're so wise? So this is again to grab them and to shame them about not dealing with the church courts. You think you're wise and you've got elders in your courts and you appointed them to judge. Are they wise enough to judge? I say this to your shame. I told you he was shaming them. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? If they confess that there's not even one who's wise enough, then then what are they saying about themselves? They're saying that well, I'm the only one wise enough to judge in the assembly. That's kind of forcing them to say a very proud thing. Right? So these are, Paul is putting them in a corner. <coughs> but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Now, it's not a failure to go to law in the court of the church. He's saying it's a failure to go to law to the world. Now, it's obviously somebody's failure when you go to law in the church even, right? Because somebody's in the wrong. Maybe both people are in the wrong, but at least one side is in the wrong. The person charging and the person being charged. And if you go to law before the unbelieving judge, you bring shame on the church. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Right? It would be better to allow wrongs to occur against you and submit to the church court than to not. It would be better for you to be cheated than to submit to the church court than to not. Now, at the same time, what happens to somebody who doesn't have a credible profession of faith, who's not in good standing, who doesn't have a shared court, well, if there's no way to deal with a church court, or if the person's been kicked out or judged guilty already by the church court, then taking to law may be the only remedy. And it's not unlawful to use the civil magistrate 
it's unlawful to go there first against a brother. And a brother is not anybody who pretends to have the slightest tinge of being a Christian. We are talking about people who have a credible profession of faith and a shared court. So if a person's in good standing and there's a shared court, you need to go through that. This is one of the reasons why Presbyterianism is so important. Because you need shared courts over broader areas. The church is so fragmented and does not have shared courts. And so we don't have any way to deal with these things when we deal with people who are distant or across the city or whatever. Church courts don't even cooperate. You can't get pastors. I talk to most evangelical pastors don't even know what a church court is. I had an experience recently where I was talking to a pastor and I mentioned the idea of a church court and he's like, you have a church court? That's cool. Cool? It's necessary to the definition of a church. It's unbelievable the level of ignorance that exists amongst the pastorate in evangelical churches. We are the tail and not the head because we do not know the Bible as a people. It is our duty to know the Bible and to spread that knowledge. You all have so much more doctrinal knowledge than the average evangelical who has been an evangelical for 20 years. Evangelize. Take these weak, professing Christians under your wing and disciple them. Talk to them. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. And you do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. There's a threat here. You're doing all this sin. Do you really believe the gospel? Do you really know? Like, Examine yourself. Do you actually believe the gospel here? Do you believe that Jesus is king of kings and that his court is authoritative? He's calling into question the credibility of their profession and asking to examine themselves. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now those words, homosexual and sodomite, people today are trying to find a way to make those not mean that. Let me tell you what. They mean that. And in particular, what it's saying there is either side of a homosexual relationship. One who acts as the dominant or male partner and one who acts as the female partner. The giver and the receiver. That's the idea there. Paul is being very explicit. It is condemning homosexuality on either side. People want to take that and say, this is talking about if you're abusing boys or something like that. That's not what it's saying. There's all, there's, there's all sorts of historic usage of this that's plain, that that's not what it's saying. And the effort to twist this, the effort to twist this, to make it so that homosexuality is not sin, is absurd. Now, we can't pretend like homosexuality is the only sin. There's a whole list of sins there. They are all sins. And we can't allow any of them to be erased from the Bible. It is very plain in the scriptures that marriage is between one man and one woman and that sexuality has no place anywhere except for in the marriage relationship. That's how it began. 
That is how it has been commanded throughout. Any deviation therefrom is condemned. Any sexual action outside of the body with anybody except for anything except for your spouse is pornea. These are categories of that. Verse 10. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners. Right? If you, if you had modern seminaries that had more open drunkenness in them, they'd probably find ways to make drunkards into not mean drunkard. Work on it real hard. Find a way to change the meaning of it. The only way to figure out how to make the Bible not condemn these sins is to get a seminary degree so that you can figure out a way to make the Bible not say those things. Now, verse 11. And such were some of you. If we don't admit these sins exist as real sins and admit our breaking of the law of God, then where is the grace? And such were some of you. And such were some of you. But you were washed. Washed from what? That filth. But you were sanctified. Made holy. Holy from what? Holy away from that stuff. Holy unto God. But you were justified. Counted righteous. Though you were guilty of those sins. Justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. Right? Justified having the actions of Jesus accounted to us so that we are counted righteous by Christ's mediation. In the name of the Lord Jesus is not just a meaningless phrase. Every time it's there, it is doctrinal content. And by the Spirit of our God. How are we justified by the Holy Spirit? We're justified by the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit gives us faith. He effectually, by grace, irresistibly calls us particularly. And He gives us faith. He gives us the instrument of justification. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. Paul here is parroting back a phrase. He is engaging with a phrase that's being used by these people to justify sin. Why is this church full of sexual immorality? Why is this church glorying in its sexual immorality? Because they have come to the position that because the ceremonial laws of Moses have been ended, therefore all the laws have been ended. They're antinomian. All things are lawful for me. Well, that's true in a certain sense, and it's not true in another sense. So here's how they took it. All things are lawful for me, which means there's no laws to differentiate good and evil for me. And then Paul repeats back, but all things are not helpful. Right? So is there a goal or is there not a goal? Is there a goal or is there not a goal? If there's a goal, we need means to get to that goal. So, okay, everything's lawful for you, but uh, let me ask you a question. Is everything helpful? And once you ask the question of helpfulness, you start to form a law saying, well, I shouldn't do unhelpful things. This is actually how most evangelicals read this, by the way. They go, yeah, everything is lawful, so I can do whatever I want as long as it's helpful. This is actually how most evangelical pastors interpret this. They actually do accept this idea of the ending of the law. 
and then they just go, oh, but is it helpful? Which is another law. Like The level of ignorance, the stupidity that comes out of pulpits is unreal. As soon as you make a standard of behavior, guess what? You've got a law. Let's, let's, all, let's take that in for a second. Any standard of behavior at all is a law. And once you've got that, then guess what? Not all things are lawful for me. So is Paul actually asserting that everything is lawful? Bar none? No. He's taking this phrase and showing how it is stupid. What he, what's acceptable is all things are lawful in the sense that the old ceremonial law that separated Jew from Gentile is no longer binding. One of the things, for example, that Paul seems to have recently said was unlawful was sexual immorality, also sleeping with your stepmom. Those seem to be things that he just communicated were not lawful. Everyone with me? You think that was there in the text? So if that's the case, this does not mean that literally everything is lawful. That is not a reasonable, coherent interpretation of Paul. He is quoting back this idea and showing them how it's absurd. All things are lawful for me, but not everything's helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of anything like sin. Remember Romans? He talked about not being under the power of sin. And hey, what's the law for? Well, law brings us the knowledge of sin, doesn't it? So you see how if you interpret Paul in this other way, you've totally torn Paul apart. You made the Bible an incoherent mess. Verse 13, this is another saying, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. The but statements are sort of Paul going, yeah, but this, guys. He's, he's sort of tearing them apart and giving them like a like one-line response to say their, their little phrase is stupid as a justification for whatever they want to do. Or they're saying, the food's for the stomach and the stomach for food, so let's go eat, right? That's the idea. We're going to get to the, idolat- the food dedicated to idols. That's where we're going to go, right? But God will destroy both it and them. Now, the body is not for sexual immorality. Could you see how easily somebody might take that? Well, the food's for the, for the stomach, and the stomach's for food. Sex is for the body, and so the body's for sex. Right? That's, that's how you can see people kind of doing this. Remember, Proverbs says the adulteress eats and then wipes her mouth and says, I've done no wrong. This is not a new sin problem. This is a thing, a connection that's made all the way back in Proverbs. It's people associating that. And why? They all relate to the seventh commandment in terms of the pursuit of pleasure, the unlawful pursuit of pleasure. So, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy the, both it and them. Right, so God's going to judge them. So how about you use your stomach well and the food well? Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Okay, the body is not for sexual immorality. What, what's the body for? The body is for the Lord. It's for service to the Lord. How is the Lord for the body? The Lord came and died to remove curse from your body, ultimately, and to resurrect your body. He's the first fruit of the resurrection. So we have here the idea of the resurrection of the dead, that the Lord is for your resurrection. But is that the ultimate end? No. The ultimate end is the glory of God. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. What does that hint at? What does that resurrection hint at? The judgment. So that's fine. That's real funny. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods. But guess what? There's a day of judgment. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So notice he's going here. He's further deconstructing their view about 
the food for the stomach and the stomach for food, the body for sex and sex for the body. He, he's deconstructing this further and saying, you, you guys don't have any credible claim to being Christian if you hold to this. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Right? That's when you're a member of the church, there's that, you're a part of the body. The body of what? The body of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? You see how this is another proof text for the idea of membership in the church, by the way? 1 Corinthians is extremely important for New Testament church order. It's extremely important for New Testament church order. Should I take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. So we have a covenant where we're joined with the Lord and we have intellectual unity with the Lord and our bodies are to be in service to the Lord. And when we put our bodies in union with harlots, what we are doing is we are joining Christ to a harlot. Blasphemy of that. And also, sex is the sign of marriage. Sex is the sign of marriage. To put it in a different context is to profane the covenant sign of marriage. It is to be between a husband and wife. And to put it someplace else is to profane that sign and therefore to profane that covenant. And when you are a Christian, it also profanes the covenant of grace that you are joined with Christ in. 18. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. And that word sexual immorality there is pornea. Flee pornea. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits pornea sins against his own body. That's a definitional sentence. Okay, Pornea is sexual sin that involves the body. It's against your body definitional sentence. It differentiates lust from the external action. It's against the body. So flee pornea. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits pornea sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own. Now notice here, back at verse 15 is a reference to Christ. In verse 19 we have the Holy Spirit and God the Father. What we have here is a triune motivation. We're supposed to recognize that we're members of Christ, that we're temples of the Holy Spirit, and that we were given the Holy Spirit by God the Father. And so because of that, we should be very motivated to keep our temple pure, our vessel pure, to be careful to keep our bodies pure, to avoid sexual sin. And we need to remember, we're stewards of our own bodies. We are not our own. For you were bought at a price. So now, not only is there the claim of ownership by covenant and by creation, we have redemption. Therefore, because of all these motives, 
glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. He owns your body. Don't use it for sexual sin. He owns your spirit. Therefore, don't even desire sin. Don't, don't lust. Don't covet. We are given our very lives, our spirits and our bodies as gifts from God, and we are to use them to glorify God. That's the goal. That's the doxological focus. Not everything's helpful. Not everything's helpful. And honestly, to say that all things are lawful, unless you mean we're freed from the ceremonial law, and therefore I'm not bound by any of the things that distinguish Jude from Gentile in the Old Covenant, you're using that phrase wrong. And it's a lie when you use it wrong. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights.